You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. I have a very special guest for episode 55. It's Don Preston. He's an amazing keyboardist, and he's best known for his work with Frank Zappa in the original Mothers of Invention. You're hearing right now a section of King Kong from 1969's Uncle Meat. But really, his story starts earlier. He was a composer way back into the 50s. He also played in jazz bands behind Tommy Flanagan, Elvin Jones, Charlie Hayden, and Nat King Cole. He scored more than 20 films, including he was one of the people that worked on Apocalypse Now. He's put out many solo albums since then. We're going to be talking about the third movement of Winds of Change, recorded in 2001. We'll then look back to a song called Palmer Park, recorded in 1975. And then also from 1975, we're going to hear a song called Analog Heaven Number no. 7 to represent all his work in electronic composition. We're going to finish off by listening to a song just called Piano Solo. It's from an album called Triangular Bent from 2016. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please head to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. For a contribution there, however small, you will receive a bonus audio for this episode, additional conversation, additional songs, and for several of our past episodes. So we will have started. I'll play a little of King Kong, Its Magnificence as Interpreted by Dom DeWilde from Uncle Meat. <laughs> but we want to get pretty quickly to Winds of Change, the third movement. This was written in 2001, originally for piano, violin, and cello, although this performance is just, is it performed or is it programmed? No, I actually performed it, but I did it with an extremely good version of a violin and a cello sound. But I'm playing it on that keyboard, of course. So, yeah, do you want to say a few words before folks hear it? What is the context for the style you're trying to go to here or what this was for? When the grandmothers played at the Gavant House, in, uh, it was our first job, I think, in 2002. There were a number of different kinds of groups playing there during this festival. And one of the groups was called the On Trio, which is a Korean all-girl piano trio. And they were all sisters, and two of them were twins. Anyhow, really beautiful girls also. So we became friends with them. And, and at one point, I said, I would love to write a piece for you. And they said, well, oh, sure, go ahead. And I did. <laughs> Later on, they said, this was too hard to play. You can't go by the third movement because that's the easiest piece in the three pieces, the first and second movements. The first movement is probably the hardest, and it's very atonal sounding and probably extremely difficult rhythmically. And so anyhow, they never did it. So I decided, well, I better do it myself then because I wanted to put it on this album uh, works. So then I did.
this is the third movement. Is it normal? Kind of the first one is a little fast and the second one is a little slow. What's the context here exactly? The first movement is moderate tempo. Second movement is very slow. Then the third move is moves along pretty good. Yeah, and you've got this based on, is it 5-8 at least you start in? Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure if I was actually hearing it in 5-8, in other words, hearing the one every five, or initially, sort of before I counted the notes, it was sounding more like, well, it's a five-note pattern, but where the one is just alternates every measure so that you're kind of hearing a different note within that repeating gesture as the one each time. Basically, it's 5-8 pretty much all the way through. In fact, I think it's 5-8 until the end of the piece. Talk about some of the tonality of how you're choosing. The melody itself sounds very much like the same vocabulary of some of the Zappa stuff that I recall you playing on that. So there's some kind of tonal center, but it's not... Like, is there a particular mode that this is in? I wanted to do the third movement in a minimalistic way. That is implied with the repeating pattern, which repeats for a long time, and then it goes into something else. But I wanted to set that piece, the third movement, off from the other two. That's not the way one does things in the classical world, but I wanted to break away from that stereotype. You were saying the first moment is very atonal sounding. You can at least hear a melody. I guess what you're talking about is the minimalism means that there's not necessarily an underlying chord. I mean, the fact that you have one of the hands of the piano just doubling the cello or the violin, depending on what part of the song, exactly. It would have been just as easy to have one of them harmonizing the other, but you save that so that when you actually do have some chords toward the end of the song, it really sounds like this is something wonderful that's happening. Thank you. Uh, It's one of my favorite pieces. I like it a lot. So that in particular, you've established some kind of tonal vocabulary. I'm not, again, I'm not sure what scale exactly this is, but then you leave it there. Is it just the fact that you're doing this minimalistic so it can be pretty freeform in terms of where you're reaching out to without it necessarily sounding like now it's a key change because it really didn't establish a key in the first place. It established those five notes that are repeating on piano, but that's the only tonal information we're given to base the rest of it on. Right. And, you know, I'm kind of against traditional ways of doing things. So I actually, at that particular point, I was deviating from the actual key. Yeah, that sounds right. So that's the main pattern underneath that. And that's Basically, once again, you're saying a certain key. It sounds like A minor, but especially by today's standards, if you're in a key, you don't really stay in a key. Well, it sounds like you're skipping the third, right? So there's not a major or a minor. It's da-da-da, and it doesn't go... Right, but in the melody, there are some uh, inferences to being minor. And then when you have the cello come in, when the violin is finally coming, first, the cello is by itself you know, accompanying the piano at the beginning. And he actually plays a major, it goes like... Uh, so it's both minor and major. 
so rhythmically, I thought it was interesting also in that section when the cello is, is kind of doing the bass part. In other words, it's doing pizzicato, just boom, boom, boom. But it's not a very predictable, like I couldn't even figure out by counting exactly when it was coming up. Is the idea that, well, it's doing the plucking as a bass would do in that area. So it's kind of providing that basis for it. But rhythmically, it's supposed to be a little surprising. Like it's frequent. It's not just don't, and then, you know, it's not surprising in that way, but it's systematically unpredictable, let's say. (laughs) Or am I just not hearing the mathematics of where it's showing up is what I'm wondering. Well, that's good. (laughs) Basically, when I write music, I throw everything out the window. I just go from what I hear. If I'm in the right place, I'm kind of writing down what I hear in my head. Composition is slow motion improvisation in your uh, your email signature. So that's a... <laughs> okay, right, exactly. And I could see why this would be difficult, even this one. It sounds like at some place you're doing the five-note thing in one hand, and then it's a sixth or an eighth-note thing in the other hand, or seven-note thing. There's definitely some polyrhythms going on here. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that happens when you develop your technique. For instance, in Pound for a Brown, when I play a solo, which is all in seven, I play take five while I'm playing the ostinato pattern with my left hand. You know, if I'm playing a solo, I've gotten used to playing all kinds of rhythms against all kinds of rhythms. My hands don't care. <laughs> what one hand doesn't care what the other one's doing, if you will. Was that one of the things in terms of inflicting this on another player? Like, have you done a lot of that? I know you were writing, even from the start, you were saying on one of your interviews that you were writing for some of the ensembles. Have you done a lot of actual, here's the written music that I have, and getting ensembles to work on? I know we're going to get to an ensemble one as our next song, but that sounds a little more like there's a group collaboration in terms of what exactly is going to happen where. Are you generally as notorious as Frank Zappa was in terms of everybody's going to do exactly this in this spot and here's the music? That's a very complicated question. (laughs) All I can say is yes. Okay. So uh, (laughs) like anyone, one develops throughout the years their writing. I will say that when I was a child, I went and saw this movie, Fantasia, by Walt Disney. It was all great, but when they got to the dinosaurs, my ears perked up, and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And then, much to my surprise, in the house I lived in, my father had a kind of a movie theater in the basement. And back where the projectors were, he had a turntable and and a bunch of records there. And I used to go, you know, play some of the records. Some of them were great. But one of the albums was The Rite of Spring. And this this was on 78s, you know, 12-inch 78s. And it was amazing. It was totally amazing. And I realized that was the same music I'd, I'd listened to in the dinosaur section of Fantasia which I went on to see about 25 times after I initially saw it. That, I think, had the most influence on me of just about anything in my life so far. And so when I got in the Army and I was surrounded by musicians, I started writing. I wrote some chamber pieces, and I didn't write for an orchestra because there was no orchestra to be had, so I wouldn't have been able to hear it anyhow. But I did write some big band pieces and a number of chamber pieces, and I actually conducted the history of a soldier while we were doing that. But probably not assuming in pieces at that point that, say, the piano player could do polyrhythms and do five in one hand and seven in the other hand. It sounds like a later development. Well, of course. That's kind of a physical thing. And it also has to do with not thinking about it. I mean, that, that helps more than just about anything to not think about it. Because if you thought about it, you say, oh, God, I can't do that. But I made a habit out of not thinking about what I was doing when I was performing or, you know, improvising. 
I guess this is a question I've long had. I was in composition school for a little while, so I listened to the contemporary classical stuff for a bit, even though that's not the thing that most sparks my soul. But what I really found freeing about trying to write like that is being able to use the emotional gestures of regular music. In other words, something that's like this, and then it's got it's got dynamics, it got its speed and slow. That you know, this sort of northern thing, but then not have to worry about a tune really is because if you open yourself up to not 12-tone in terms of Schoenberg, something mathematically is determined where you're going to go next, but are very free about what pitches you used. And I know in a lot of your electronic stuff, there's not even necessarily exact pitches involved. It's just you're turning a knob, you're making a gesture, you're doing something on your iPhone. That's related in an interesting way to the way like Stravinsky would write. Stravinsky, obviously, if you're composing for an orchestra, if you're composing for anybody else, you have to put mm-hmm. exact pitches, right? With some exceptions for percussion or whatever. So you have to think through those harmonic things in a way that you can't apply what you're just talking about in terms of just move, don't think about it. Like, Or is there something taking seriously what we were just saying that your motto of composition is slow motion improvisation, that you could do something that's just as spontaneous, but write it down and then you can have other people play it exactly like that. That's the problem, isn't it? Doing something and writing it down, because if you go too far, you can't remember it. I mean, if it's really complicated or unless you're Mozart or somebody like that. Or the other way of doing that is recording it. And then figuring out what you did later. I've done that a number of times. A lot of times I'll improvise a piece and like write it down periodically. In other words, I'll I'll play three or four bars and I'll write that down. Then I'll play another three or four bars. And at first I'll, I'll play the first four bars and then I'll keep playing. And then I'll write that down and so on. I think that the mind is organized to the extent that there's a natural form in just about anything you do. And if you have been playing music for a certain amount of time, you also create a form when you're improvising stuff. And in terms of the way that you were thinking of this Winds of Change specifically, would this come out of you in more or less a rush in terms of, okay, I've got my piano pattern and I know pretty much based on some improvisation initially, at least you know thinking in that terms, what's going to happen in any given section? Was this built in little chunks or was this more or less a constant stream or was it do the piano all the way through and then add the other stuff afterwards? Or what, what was this one like? I think I wrote the piano part to begin with. I mean, I knew I wanted that ostinato figure to go on and on. And then I started writing the cello part. I know that came next. And I was wrong when I played it on the piano. I think it started on an E instead of an A. I'm going... uh, And then the cello comes... So that's the cello part, and it just goes on from there. I imagine that I, I would have written that out to go with the piano part. And it's very possible I could have recorded the piano part and then worked on the cello part while the piano part was playing. Sure. That makes sense. Or see, yeah, see what melodies kind of come into your head. I imagine, given your talent with keyboard, is there any distance between the melody going in your head and it actually being in your fingers? <laughs> or do you more or less write with your fingers that it's, there's no difference? <laughs> That's a very good question. I would have to say both, especially if you get into the atonal aspect of music, that is really hard to have under your fingers. Although I've trained myself over many years to improvise atonal music. One of the things we do, Bunk and I do, is we play the Eric Dolphy Memorial Barbecue. And when we play that, we play Dreit Kleberstuck by Arnold Schoenberg as an introduction. And now there are many Dreit Kleberstucks, but the one we play is the first one he wrote. But we don't play all of it. Let me see if I can... uh, uh. I was reading that, but it's so dark in this room, I can't see the notes. 
Anyhow, you get the idea, and we were playing that. And this girl came up to me uh, a few nights ago where I was playing solo piano. She said, I heard you play that Arnold Schoenberg piece. I'm trying to write a piece like Arnold Schoenberg. She said, you know any way of teaching me how to do that? And I said, sure, I could teach you in about five minutes. She said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, all you do is play major sevenths, minor ninths, minor thirds, and occasionally a major third. And she said, wow. And then I had the piano right there. She could you do that, play any of that? And I said, sure, the major seventh. And then a minor ninth would be... And a minor third. And so on. <laughs> so that was a rule of thumb. And then, of course, it has a vague resemblance to Schoenberg and, and his the way he wrote 12 tone music. Yeah, I thought for some reason there was a more mathematical, evenly spreading things over all 12 tones. But it's been a long time since I thought about Schoenberg, frankly. Well, yeah, you know, according to him, you're not allowed to repeat a note until you have played all 12 tones. Ah, there you go. Which is the reason it's named 12 tone system. But I could see numerous in this particular piece, the dry clapper stick, there are many, many places where he plays the same note. So why did, would he say that if he's not doing? So there must be exceptions to the rule that I'm not aware of. He must be using his actual ears and intuition and not just some predetermined formula. Well, yeah, he. I think he was one of the most melodic composers ever. When you listen to Transfigured Night, the Lachnacht, that's an incredibly beautiful piece. And this like before his 12-tone system era. Even this piece that I'm just playing here is really beautiful. And in the way that it's written, it's just amazing. But it's harder to listen to. Well, we should get our second song out there, since we've dwelled so long in the first one here. Palmer Park, recorded in 1975 with mm -hmm. actual other musicians. That so You've got bass, you've got percussion, you've got drums, you've got trombone. There is a guitar solo in here, too, right? You didn't send me a guitarist, but... Yeah, it is, and that's Arthur Barrow. Oh, okay. Who played bass on the track, but... See, this is a, during a time when Arthur and I had this studio in my basement. It was an, a Stevens 8-track tape recorder, and... And who I am kind of proud to say that, well, first of all, they did a test of all the machines in Los Angeles that were multi-track machines. And they came out with the conclusion that the Stevens tape recorders were the best ones of all. And Stevens used to come over to my house and tune up the 8-track because he said that was one of the first 8-tracks he'd ever made. Anyhow, in this studio, uh, Arthur and I recorded a bunch of stuff like that. So this is fairly soon after your final work with Frank, right? Was this a studio-only creation, or this was with Arthur and, and these other folks, Michael Creighton, percussion, Frank Wilson, drums, Bruce Fowler, trombone? Were you playing out with these folks? Was this an active group, or this was a one-off jam? We did play some concerts, but this the recording was done in the studio. Mm. And these guys, all great musicians, can I say? I mean, Bruce Fowler and one of the greatest musicians I know.
kind of blur together some of jazz history in terms of there's some things in here, like your intro electric piano stuff that sounds very bitches brew. So, you know, 1969, 70, something like that. Versus then when you actually get to the horn melody or the horn and synth together melody, it sounds almost more like a lot of 80s jazz that I'd heard. Talk about this composition in terms of the style and where this was coming from. It's funny you should ask, but Arthur and I just had started listening to Weather Report. Ah. And so I pretty much based my writing on what I was hearing when I listened to them. Now, it's not really based on any song or anything else. It's just on the style of the way they played. Sure, or Return to Forever or one of those other kind of groups like that definitely sounds like it could have been a popular jazz tune of the time. Yeah, so that's basically what it was based on. And there are a couple other songs I wrote at that time that are also based on Weather Report stuff. And that's what we're doing right now, actually. We're, Bunk and I have a group called the Nana Bunk Show, but it's tenor, piano, bass, and drums, which is the same configuration as Weather Report. So it seemed like the thing that's holding it down, you know, making it kind of accessible for the average person is that you've just got this nice constant funk groove going through it. And in some places, it even the bass is staying on basically the same pitch or, you mm-hmm. know, repeating the same riff. But that allows you then in your keyboard, since it's the only chordal instrument, to really go far and wide. How much of that was written versus improvised in terms of you know your intro and then your elaborations within the song? Well, it's all written except for the solos. Nothing else is improvised. And the very last lick on the album is it's not based on notes or Weather Report played, but when Joe Zavano had his keyboard set up, he had a, a group of modules... I can't remember the name of them, but each module played a separate note. And you could get very rich stuff sounding by having them play all the same note. But also you could have them play chords that they would play when you just press down one note on the keyboard. And that's what the last lick on this track is. I'm playing these chords with one note. Well, that's a very fast swirling pattern. I assumed it was, you know, one synth thing triggering two sounds rather than you playing it against yourself or something. Well, I'm I'm playing it against the actual chord structure, which is, I mean, the bass is playing one note, and then the chords come up. So I'm going like a... And the chords are all, it's one, four, seven. Okay. In other words, they're all fours. So. See, I can barely do it with <laughs> playing the chords, but. I'm standing up, so it's. So that's how that works. So then also, though, the several times in the song where the melody line, it sounds like a synth doubled against itself. I know occasionally it's you and the trombone playing in unison. You know, if I'm hearing the keyboard doubled against itself, is this a bunch of overdubs just to thicken things and, you know, make it sound the way? Or were you actually changing the tone on the fly so that now when I play this riff with my right hand, it's going to have two tones at the same time and one of them is going to have a little grit in it? You know, there's interesting things that change the texture throughout the song. One of the things I did on that recording was I had a chorus effect on the Bender Rhodes, but it wasn't real a chorus. I'm trying to remember what the hell that box was for, but what I do, I can't remember that, but I remember that it really had a beautiful chorus effect on the Fender Road, which is a kind of real slow vibrato that wasn't changing the pitch, but it was changing the amplitude of the note. Right. So I think it's a tremolo pedal or something slower than that. I don't know whatever speed you set it at. So it's not necessarily tremolo. It's more of a, has that chorus swishy effect. 
I assume the percussion parts were not written. That really peps up the song that you've got this thing that answers just throughout the song of these, how many sounds is he playing? They're like, what? Is this a whole batch of drums in front of him that he's now I'm going to do the little clicking? Michael Creighton was there and he is a percussionist. Yeah. So you're hearing two guys playing drums. Sure. If you will. And I believe Michael was playing conga drum, you know, hand drums, all hand drums. And then the other guy, Frank, uh, was playing a regular drum kit. Okay, there's a lot of weird sounds coming out of there that I would not have pictured were just conga or something, you know, something got traditional, that it's little high-pitched things. It's a... Yeah, he had a bunch of stuff with him but that played. We had a group together called the Creighton Preston Ensemble. Oh. And we played for a couple of years doing that. And we never played anything in 4-4 or 3-4. Everything was anywhere from 5-8 to 19-8. So I guess anything else about the way you structured this, that you got about three different themes that come back, it alternates between atmospheric, you just going and playing different thick chords wandering around the electric piano, and then, okay, here's a melody that comes in and you know actually carries it. With, I guess it's mostly you doubling the trombone for the most part. And then we fill in the gaps, or let's put in a solo here. I mean, is that just sort of the, it's the traditional jazz. It's not quite the, here's the head, and now we mess around. And here's the, you know, there's at least three different parts like that. We play a melody, and then we put in a solo. Then we play another melody, and there's a solo that goes in there. And then we play another melody again. And we, I think we recapitulate the melody toward the end. Yeah, and you've got you know a couple of these places where it really gets punctuated. Of Now it's a transition. We're all going to play this one riff together to kind of get out to the next section. You know, there's some ascending thing. I mean... Again, was that kind of the weather report model that you were going on in terms of, you know, how to make it just sound like this could just go on for 20 minutes and like Bitches Brew, which does not have those kind of punctuation things for the most part. It's just more of an organic swirling around for a long time. Well, that wasn't planned. We weren't going on what weather report did at the time. I personally did what I thought was be interesting. Nothing to do with weather report. Okay, I just, you'd mentioned that before, just in terms of the structure of this kind of thing. Basically, is the sound. That's what I was going for yeah. in, in relationship to a weather report. Okay, well, that might be a good way to transition to our third song, which is just all about sound. The vast majority of the stuff I listened to you, you know, from your more recent albums was this kind of electronic sound collage stuff. And the one you picked is right back to near the beginning of where you were messing around with that, 1975, Analog Heaven. This is Analog Heaven number seven. Say a little about what the tools you were using to put this together. This sounds more like that improvised thing that we were talking about, you know, that doesn't have to pay attention to pitch, that it's rhythmic, it's you reacting against technology, but say a little more about this. When I did that piece, I had a modular Moog and a mini Moog and a few Buchla pieces of equipment and I had a beautiful kind of electronic music studio. And what better to do with it than play electronic music?
I was trying to figure out, is this in a time? It kind of has a 6-8 feel right at the beginning, but that doesn't really stick around. It just seems more that it's determined by, is it just an analog delay? Or what about your equipment that is making this repetition that is what at least everything that's in the left side of the stereo spectrum seems to be about, that you've got this analog delay or something that everything is triggering that it doesn't just pile up upon itself. You pull it away so there's silences and things. But say a little more about, you know, the actual process of doing this. I think what you're calling a delay or saying it was something like a delay was an actual sequencer. Oh, okay. Which is a device. I had one by Buchla and it was a 16-step sequencer. And I think the Moog sequencers were 12-step, but I had six of those that were 12-step and you could link them together so that it became longer and longer. They would go from one step to the next, and what they would do, they would send voltages to the voltage-controlled oscillators, and the oscillators would create pitches in varying degrees according to where you had the sequencer set. And also the sequencer would open and close an envelope so that it allowed the note to come out of the envelope. The envelope generators are like doors. And uh, the first one is the attack, which is like opening the door. Mm -hmm. The second one is the decay, which means closing the door, how fast it closes and how long it takes. And the third one was how much you leave the door open. It's the sustain. And then the fourth one was called the release, which means if you have the door open and you just push it with your hand and it closes all by itself, slowly or fast, whatever you set it at. So that's basically what I had to work with. And I had nine oscillators and, well, can you imagine six cases of that stuff? It does quite a job. The things that are happening in the separate ears, so you have mostly the sequencer stuff in the left and in the right is mostly this low throbbing. And then, you know, by the end, it's almost a traditional spooky soundtrack low bass (laughs) sound that actually you know sounds like more recognizable music from film so those are done separately and put together you did the left first i assume or on that particular album everything was done at a different year Mm -hmm. so i think that one of them i did in 1967 in which i didn't have any synthesizer except my own one that i made and then in 75 i think that was yes all the analog heaven stuff the one you were talking about, that's when I had gotten my modular Moog and already had a mini Moog by that time. And then the next one, which was 81 or 82, I can't remember the exact date, but it was all of that stuff plus a drummer friend that I knew used to come over and jam with me. And then one day we said, well, why don't we record this? <laughs> so we did. I was just still talking about Analog Heaven number 7, that you've got distinct things going on in the left and the right. So No, analog number seven are also, I'm just saying that, yeah, that whole thing was done in 75 with the equipment I described. But the rest of that album, other kinds of electronic music at different points in my, in my life. And so did it change in terms of, I see you on YouTube doing like the thing with your iPhone and, you know, other things with electronics. And in fact, what we heard in Palmer Park, there's, of course, you playing the electric piano through the whole thing, but there's also these kind of electronic oozings and (laughs) other noises that are along with the percussion that are making it interesting sounding. That was that was you as well? I believe uh, I had a mini Moog at that point. Yeah, somewhere right around that time I got the modular Moog too. So I could have been doing stuff with that or that could be overdubs. I don't know. A lot of the Palmer Park album was, well, it was done live, so to speak. We didn't do every single instrument separate. We did the basic, you know, bass, drums, and keyboard that was done live. I think we added the trombone later on. And even the percussionist was there live, too. So it still sounds like, though, with Analog Heaven, that it wasn't a matter of, you know, you're playing your mini Moog or something and able to make these interesting noises more or less improvised. It sounds like, no, you're having to program the sequencers 
and that it's a much more deliberate, you know, kind of like programming it in a computer would be now, but you didn't have that. Is that right. so that's not a really a real time process creating this analog heaven stuff. Is that correct or or was it Yes, it okay. is correct. Although I did get a computer in 78. Oh. <laughs> so that was my first computer, but that was still three years away. Well, that's why I was wondering about the winds of change. Like, it sounds so precise that I almost just assumed that, you know, you played the piano left hand in there once, da 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 da, da and just sequenced that. It's just an easier way to, to create. No, I just played that, and I played all the other instruments, you know, the cello and violin. I played them separately, but I don't know for sure if I did it a la MIDI. Mm-hmm. Now, if I did it uh, with MIDI, I could have quantized the notes, which means making them go to the nearest eighth note or sixteenth note. That's a fairly good possibility, which would explain why they were so precise. But if I were Glenn Gould, I would have done the same thing. <laughs> he was known for doing that kind of stuff. So just to return to Analog Heaven with the sequencers you're talking about, it almost gets like a banjo on the left side, and then it goes up into the stratosphere. So this is just turning the knobs, essentially, on the oscillators. Right, exactly. Do you know what it's going to sound like before you do it, or it's a matter of just experimenting with this stuff until, okay, that's cool? You know, let me say this. When we were working on Apocalypse Now, other guys that were working on the film, like Bernie Krauss and... Pat Gleason, they would write down the positions of all the knobs on their synthesizers. So they would know, in other words, if you were trying to get a timpani sound, Uh they would write that all down. I personally preferred to find that sound each time I had to play it. Because, uh, first of all, it's just too much fun getting what you know, the knowledge of music that you have in your head, and coming up with a timpani sound. First of all, you have to realize all the tones that are in a timpani sound, starting with the bass tone. But uh, with a timpani, there are many, many overtones to the sound, depending on how hard you hit it. So then you would start adding oscillators on top of oscillators, to create that sound and then you of course would have to get the envelope exactly right so that it would ring a certain amount of time the way a timpani does and would have an attack as well so i mean all, all of those things add up so you have to use your knowledge of acoustics in order to describe the sound of a timpani with the equipment you have available and so I, I just enjoyed doing that every time. Uh, to me, it worked better because every time I did it, something was a tiny bit different, and it gave more variety to the sounds I was doing. Basically, why I'm saying that is to show that I did that on Analog Heaven because that's how you change the parameters of the sounds to do the composition you're doing. And yes, you have a certain idea of what's going to come out, but you don't have a totally accurate idea. Sure, it's going to get, you know, I'm adding tone here. You know the parameters you're messing with, but not necessarily exactly. That's the beauty of analog in particular. (laughs) Yes. Never quite know what noises are going to come out. So I took a pre-computer electronic music course at the end of the 80s using, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, very old equipment, and they played us compositions of that sort. What school was it? This was at University of Michigan. No kidding. Gosh, that's interesting. My sister went there. So much of putting those together had to do with just cutting the tape. So I like, you know, I learned to splice one inch tape or half inch. I don't remember what it it was exactly. And that's how we created a lot of the unexpected noises is, you know, let's just slice things more or less randomly and put them together and see what happens with that. And then do an overdub with that, playing the results of that splice on in recording it on another tape and doing an overdub. I don't remember there being more than a couple oscillators. I don't remember there being the option to, as you're saying, you know, have eight of them doing different things at, at different times. It was all building stuff with tape if you wanted to be fancy like that. In these electronic things, were you using tape in that way at all? Or was it really just purely work with the synthesizers and that's what gets captured? In 1966, 
seven, I recorded a piece. What happened was that, well, Meredith Monk, who was a dear friend, she would come to the Garrick Theater and I would record her voice. Sometimes I would record her voice with me playing various keyboards that I had. And then I would go all over town. I went to a pianist's house. I can't remember his name. Uh, we would play a bunch of stuff and I would record all of that. And then I went to a percussionist a drummer's house and I'd record him playing just about everything he had in the house, pots and pans and lamps and everything. I did that for like six months, recorded city songs and what have you. And then I got in the studio and I started putting together a piece made up out of all these sounds. And you want to talk about splicing? <laughs> this piece was 20 minutes long and I had at least 90 splices in it. Is it trying to accurately convey those recordings, or were you also speeding them up or putting them in weird combinations? I don't recall speeding them up or slowing them down, but I was making a composition out of all the varieties of sound that I had. That's basically all it was. But in order to do that... Would that, would that count as musica concrete? Is there a... Or what's the technical term? That's probably what you would call it. Yeah, because it wasn't electronic. Mm-hmm. Although there were some electronic sounds in there. I don't know where I got them. Well, it was so great listening to a big variety of stuff. I know you have also done a, a lot of soundtracks. Mm-hmm. The only one that I heard is the Gary Plays. Oh. Which is a soundtrack for multiple plays. And you know, so much of that is... Okay, now I'm going to do a smoky blues tune. Now I'm going to do a, in fact, something that sounds like classical guitar doing a very Spanishy stuff, except it's obviously synth, but very much writing to, I imagine, a scene. So, you know, really showing off, while some of it has a very open tonality and stuff like the songs we've heard here, a lot of it is very programmed. Seems like you've had to adapt to a lot of different styles that you really can kind of, like a, an actor, that you can just pull out your, whatever the mood requires. Do you want to say anything about that sort of experience? I know you'd also complained about, you know, in soundtracks, them trying to make you imitate particular other composers that you maybe didn't like so much or things like that. Yeah, that's always part of doing film, that unless you're John Williams, where you can tell somebody, I don't do that. (laughs) It's a matter of either doing it or not having the job. Then I can do it. But I quit because of that kind of thing. You know, it just seems as a musician trying to play professionally, I mean, obviously you could glom on to as a sideman to whatever thing over the years that you, you certainly had a lot of options there. But in terms of opportunities to play your own primarily instrumental music outside of a context of glorifying the memory of Frank Zappa or something, which is great that you could, of course, do those tours as well. But it seems like soundtracks that were seen as the refuge of the modern avant-garde composer. Soundtracks from Plays by Murray Mednick. That was actually the title. So would that be the kind of thing that is it an actual creative outlet for you or is a I must chain myself to what the director is telling me to do? No, you know, when you're doing plays, you have a lot more say hmm. in what's going on. First of all, the writer and the director were close friends of mine. And I was actively performing in the play Hmm. along with the play and some of that got recorded and then uh, what happened is the writer murray mednick married this girl and the girl had a sister they received money from their father when their father died somewhere along three billion dollars each so they had a record company and they wanted me to do a record using the music from his place and there were a bunch of them now, there were only two movies that they made, and this had nothing to do with this other music. All of that music on the, at that particular album is from plays. Maybe as a song to send people away with, I had just discovered this 2016 released album attributed to Triangular Bent. Oh, Triangular Bent. Yeah, I was going to mention something about that to you. I thought maybe we could play piano solo. I'm not ashamed of that at all. That really seems to show off the sort of uh, Stravinsky kind of thing we were talking about before, that it's very conventionally emotional in certain ways and the way you're playing it, but yet your note choices, it's not old-time classical. Very interesting song. I noticed they put it, it's the last song on the album as well, Mm -hmm. because it stood up really well. It has a good composition. 
even though it is totally improvised. And was that the theme of that album, that it was it was you improvising usually with a couple other musicians here? No, this group is basically an electronic music group. And the guy, Philip, specializes in computer-generated music that he has programmed and gotten some amazing aspects out of his programming. The other guy, Jeff, he's world-renowned as he uh, turns toys into electronic instruments. It's called circuit bending. I mean, this has been going on for maybe 10 or 12 years. And so being one of the best there is, he has done some spectacular things with toys that one would hardly believe possible. That's basically uh, the group. Well, and he plays cello, right? I mean, so there is some actual <laughs> some guitar and cello right. and things to bounce against these electronic soundscapes. Yeah, yeah. Now, there is a track there with him and I playing. But as far as I remember, it's the last track is the best. Mm-hmm. It's just called Piano Solo. <laughs> yeah. Wow, thanks a lot to Don Preston. If you want to hear more about Don's time with Zappa and the Mothers, 
take a look at the blog post associated with this episode on nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I will link to an extensive series of YouTube videos that he made about that. You can also see him live playing with Bunker Gardner, another Zappa alum, with whom he's also played in The Grandmothers since 2000. So he and Bunk keep the very complex compositions of Frank Zappa alive with that. Unfortunately, a lot of his albums are not available through iTunes and the like. Though if you look around the internet, you can at least hear clips of them. He actually sings on some of it. So he's got a steady stream of releases through his career. Don is also my oldest guest so far. He's 84. Just an amazing player, particularly amazing on improvising electronic stuff. It's really quite a different model of making electronic music than the guy sitting at a computer, putting loops together and building on those that we're much more familiar with these days. Hey, I want to remind you that there is bonus discussion for this episode. Don and I kept talking about some of his other projects, about the history of music, the direction of music, and you can listen to that by becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, or if you are a subscriber already at partiallyexaminedlife.com, a PEL citizen, then you'll find it there in your citizen feed as well. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up. The last couple that I did were with Annie Haslam from Renaissance and Alejandro Escovedo, who is pretty much king in Austin, where I lived for a number of years. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.